I really believe that uh, to be a religious person is to be absolutely committed to the symbols that are mediating the religious for you. The really effective religious discourse is the discourse that comes out of faith and out of this commitment. It's a little bit like love, you know? You choose your beloved and say, it's only her, it's only him, there's no one else. And you know, however, that there could have been others, but you, you no longer entertain that thought because it's only in this absolute devotion to the one that you're going to penetrate into the mystery of love. I've been reading lots of Buddhism again, and I've been reading Shin Buddhism, which is a kind of medieval, a medieval re reform of, of Pure Land Buddhism, which is the major sect of Buddhism in Japan. And it's often been referenced as being the Buddhism that comes closest to Christianity. And Shinran has become a really big figure for me, but reading Shin Buddhism has given me a new way of thinking about Paul and generally speaking about the, about New Testament Christology. And so I, I was thinking about actually coining a term. It's kind of a dangerous thing to do in, in theology, but but let's see where it goes. And speaking about Christ nature, analogous to Buddha nature, I'm very attracted to this concept of Buddha nature. And it always, it always catches my attention. It always leaves me with something when I, when I read about Buddha nature, let's say in Dogen or in Shinran or, or, or other Mahayana texts. It's a paradoxical concept. It's a cosmological concept. It's a concept for everything. But it strikes me that it's a nice way for us to think about Christ Christ nature. And I'm not, I'm not really interested in syncretism because I don't think that's any good. And we've done that before and it doesn't leave, leave us with much. So it's not a question about bringing these two together and saying that Buddhism is Christianity, Christianity is Buddhism, nor is it about finding some meta perspective whereby we're able to sort of evaluate these things and say, oh, this one is, you know, closer to the truth than this one. I, I just, I'm, I'm, I'm entirely opposed to that approach. It's, it's because I really believe that uh, to, to be a religious person is to be absolutely committed to the symbols that are mediating the religious for you. So for a Buddhist, for example, to consider Christ as the savior of the world is for a Buddhist to lose faith in Buddha. And, and similarly, for a Christian to think about the Christ as, you know, some avatar or manifestation of some cosmic power of which Buddha is also representative is for a Christian to lose faith in Christ. And at that point, their religious discourse becomes less effective. The really effective religious discourse is the discourse that comes out of faith and out of this commitment, this kind of, it's a little bit like love, you know, you choose your beloved and say, it's only her, it's only him, there's no one else. And you know, however, that there could have been others, but you, you no longer entertain that thought because it's only in this absolute devotion to the one that you're going to penetrate into the mystery of love. So similarly with the religious symbolic, you've got to give yourself completely. And, 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 that, and you don't give yourself completely and say, oh, and, but I'm just giving myself completely as if this is true. I know there are others. No, you, you, you actually, you break with that thought and you become necessarily some kind of absolutist with respect to the symbols that are mediating divinity for you. So, so no syncretism, but when you read these other traditions, 
some of them. I mean, they don't all illuminate Christ for me, but I suppose I, I have an education ahead of me in this regard. I've even been reading some quite a bit of shamanism lately, actually, which is intriguing to me. But when you read the other traditions, they can help you to understand your own. And they, it's like seeing, you know, Thomas Merton has this lovely passage where he's walking in the hills outside of Gethsemane Abbey, where he has his life, his monastery. He's walking in the hills and he's admiring the vision of the abbey from the hills. And he makes a reflection that every monk really needs to get away from his monastery in order to appreciate how beautiful it is. And similarly, this is, this is the way I experience uh, the religious texts from other traditions. They, they give me a perspective on the religion that I'm entirely committed to, if we can call Christianity religion, or the way, you know, the symbol to which I've devoted my life. Yeah, so Buddha nature and Christ nature. So let me just offer you this then and see what you have to say about it. Be a little more specific about what, what exactly is it in the, in the Mahayana concept of Buddha nature, which can help us to understand the Christology of the New Testament. Now that sounds like a very technical and scholarly question, and it is in some respects, but I, I'm, I'm not going to pursue it in that way. I'm going to pursue it in a way that I hope is a little more accessible, almost like a a sermon for the New Agers. But the assumption is that Christians and post-Christians can learn a great deal from Buddhism. And in particular, they can learn to break with certain kinds of misconceptions of the Christ, which abound in Christianity. There's quite a few of these, but one that's predominant, which we talked about in Secular Christ, is this, the wrong kind of personification of the Christ. Christ is not a god. He's not like Zeus or Karanunos or Pan or Hermes. These are creatures. These are forms, if you like. And the Logos, Christ is the Logos, and he, Christ is the form of forms, as the Christian Platonists put it, the Logos through whom all things are made. So he's, he's not a particular form. And there, and there is no particular form or particular type of being, whether it's a human animal or angelic being or a throne, dominion or principality, these cosmic powers that Paul speaks of, more or less angels, there, there's no being who doesn't exhibit something of Christ. That's, that's straight out of the letters of Paul. But he's also not a person. And this is difficult because we, we miss this point, particularly those of us who are attracted to Buddhism. He's not a person like you or me. Now, Christ is eminently personal. And this is something that the Buddhists can, and I think in some ways, in some instances, they have learned something from Paul in this regard, that personality is, in some respect, the highest natural form. And so we cannot deny it of the Christ, but Christ, so Christ possesses all that personality possesses. He's personal. He's not subpersonal, but he's not a person. If you want, you could say Christ is transpersonal, not subpersonal. You know, he's also not a, you know, force. I think that when we, when we lose this, the, the emphasis on the personal, we tend to think, start, we start thinking about Christ as a force, like gravity. But there's nothing, there's nothing about Christ that is anything like a force. 
the forces mechanical and compelling and dominating in some respects and necessary. And the, uh, Christ, as, as an expression of grace, is he never forces. He is, if you like, a power, or he is the power that begins and ends everything. But he's not, he's not something you can control or command. And I think that when we get into impersonal mystical traditions, whether they're Buddhist or Taoist or Sufi, we, we always run the, we run the, the mystic runs the risk of slipping into the temptation of thinking that they can control or command the divine force through technique. And this is what the Shin Buddhists, what Shinran in particular, discovered, that Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism, tends towards this kind of problem. If the Christians tend to per fall into errors by personalizing the Christ and turning him to a person like you or me, the Buddhists tend to fall into a different kind of error by depersonalizing the Buddha nature and turning it into a force that you can control through technique, you know, through esoteric rituals or through recitations of mantras or through med long hours of meditation or something like that. <laughs> Shinran discovered that that was a total dead end. He said, that's the, that is the path of self-power. And in so far as self-power is the problem, reliance on yourself, you know, objectification of yourself, substantialization of yourself, belief in yourself, whatever. In so far as the self, the ego is the problem, the delusion, relying on yourself is never going to get you out of yourself. So you've got to begin to let go entirely and let something else guide you. And Shinran called this other power. He called it the great practice of other power. And it's very interesting to see how, how personal everything becomes with this move of, in Shin Buddhism. Yeah, so, so thoughts like this got me thinking about Buddha nature and Christ nature, or the Logos in Paul. So the Buddha nature, you know, is is the, you know it's the fundamental concept in Mahayana Buddhism. If you like, it's the it's the symbol for ultimate reality. You know, everything is Buddha nature. Buddha nature is everywhere. It's the reality of appearances. You know, of the appearances of you and me as separate subjects, and the appearances of things as causally related to each other and maybe distinct from one another. All of that discrete phenomenal reality, phenomenal manifestation is unified on this non-dual level such that the Mahayana sage can speak about Buddha nature being in the trees and in the animals and in sentient beings and in stars and in, in the practice of making a cup of tea. It's ubiquitous. It's, it's certainly infinite. And it's always victorious. That is, no amount of delusory ego activity can obstruct the, the, the light-giving, life-giving direction of Buddha nature. So th this is where the, the Shin Buddhist tradition takes refuge in the Bodhisattva Amida, Amida, who's one of the celestial Buddhas, so not a historical Buddha, but a celestial power, cosmic power, Bodhisattva, he, 
he foregoes his own enlightenment, his own transition into what they call the pure land because of compassion for others who are not there. And he makes a vow. And this is the, this is the, uh, the central piece of Shin Buddhism. The vow is that so long as uh, any sentient beings who desire enlightenment, I'm paraphrasing, any sentient being that desires enlightenment and yet is prevented from entering into the pure land, so long as anyone exists, I will forego my own enlightenment. And then the, the Shin Buddhists add a nice little logical conclusion to this, that the Amida Buddha actually did not uh, remain deluded, but was enlightened. And therefore, there is no sentient being who desires enlightenment, who shall not break through, who shall not find admittance into the pure land. And the way into this admittance into the pure land is by, entrust, by entrusting oneself or by trust and by having faith entirely in the power of Amida Buddha to break through your delusion, to do what you cannot do, to bring you there even though everything about you indicates that you're not there and you have no capacity to be there. So it's very, very much like a Lutheran faith experience in grace or a Pauline experience in grace. So Buddha nature is ubiquitous, infinite, always victorious. And it's manifest in the world as the power of enlightenment, the power of knowledge, the power of self-transcendence, the power of love. It manifests itself in, in the defeat of anxiety, despair, and depression. So wherever there is a victory of light and love over despair and depression, violence and death, there we see Buddha nature, which is everywhere, but we see it, it so, so to speak, it comes to the surface. So this is, this is orthodox Mahayana Buddhism, if you like, and it's found in texts that come out of Indian Buddhism as old as the first few centuries of, the, of Buddhism. So Nargarjuna and Vasubandhu, the Majamika tradition and the Yogacara tradition. So this is old stuff. And it, it develops parallel to Christianity, even at, in some respects at the very same time that the Christian texts are being written, and yet without any connection to Christianity, there's no historical line of influence, at least not, not until, you know, 19th or 20th century. So there's that really interesting question here of these two traditions that have so much in common, and what does that mean? What strikes me is that you have this doctrine of, you could say, a doctrine of redemption, some kind, or enlightenment is not exactly redemption, but a doctrine of, a, a doctrine of uh, well, let's call it redemption, of salvation, a doctrine of salvation, probably, probably a better term because it's more generic, parallel to Christianity, which speaks of a kind of, of a power for breakthrough and enlightenment and truth and love triumphing over darkness and despair, which is pervasive in the universe itself, and which is to be relied on and trusted entirely. And one then turns to Paul. For example, Paul's letter to the Colossians, the treatise on the cosmic Christ, where Paul speaks about the Christ in terms that are strikingly similar to what we've just said about Buddha nature. 
Who is the Christ in Colossians? He is the one word of the Father, the image of the invisible God through whom all things are created. So he's not a person and he's not a God. He is the he is reality itself. And any any bit of reality, anything that's real, is only real by virtue of its emergence from him through him. And this maps on very closely to, to passages we see in the prologue to the Gospel of John, where we hear that the Christ is the light of all people. That's John 1:4. The light of all people everywhere. So wherever the light is a metaphor, of course, a metaphor for what? A metaphor for knowledge, for wisdom, for for well, we for gnosis, if you like, for enlightenment of all people, wherever there is a triumph of light and knowledge over darkness and ignorance, there we see the Christ. That's what John is saying. He continues, he says, Christ is the true light, the logos, the true light which enlightens everyone. You have this similar emphasis that you get in Mahayana Buddhism to the universality of this principle. This is not a special dispensation for a particular group of people. This is for everyone. This is no local God. This is no national myth. This is rather universalism. And I think this is what's most striking about Buddhism and Christianity is that they break through all national myths and local and, and local religions to universalism. They conceive of humanity, and indeed in, Buddhist, uh, in Buddhism, they, of, of all life, of all that is sentient, as one. And so the universalism is central, of course, to the New Testament. In the first letter to John, we hear also that it's not just a question of knowledge. The, the Christ is not just the light, but the Christ is the life, the word of life. You get this parallel between light and life, which is kind of like the intellectual knowing part of being and the energetic, reproductive, material part of being. Christ is on both sides of that. Christ is the origin of, and destiny of of everything that lives and everything that knows. And, and therefore, we shouldn't speak about Christ consciousness. That's too one-sided. We should speak, I think, of Christ nature. And that's very close to, to Christian Platonism. So the, the first theologians, such as Origen and of Alexandria and the Cappadocian fathers, they were all Platonists, but only by virtue of learning their metaphysics from Plato and his followers. They used their metaphysics to understand the New Testament. And so their source text was not Plato, but the letters of Paul and the Gospels. And they spoke of Christ as, as we said, I think, as the form of forms, as the logos, as though the divine God only has a single thought, speaks only one word, expresses his thought in one single word eternally from the beginning. And that word is identical with him, reflects his mind back to himself, the word that is with God and of God and is God. And in this word, in this one single thought, everything that could possibly exist, every possible structure, every form of intelligibility, every temporal event is contained. The Christian Platonists loved this idea. If we approach Christ in this sense, obviously we raise up, we raise the question of the relationship of the Christ nature to 
the historical Jesus. And really, the, that question is the question of historical Christianity. That's what drives all the debates. That's, that is what the Council of Nicaea yeah. and the Council of Chalcedon, and that's what all the fuss and bother is about. That's, what, that's the discussion. So it's not as though we've found some kind of problem here that's insoluble. Uh, we found the problem, which is the motive, the intellectual motive force of the Christian tradition itself. Who is Jesus with relationship, with relation to what we're calling Christ nature and what, what John calls the logos? We've, we see that Christ nature is ubiquitous and universal. And so it's not something that is possessed by a specific group. And one of the things that's happening with Paul vis-a-vis -vis Judaism is not that he's breaking with the Jewish tradition. I think the new perspective on Paul and the new Paul scholarship has made it absolutely clear that Judaism was far more pluralistic than we think, and that Paul is not breaking with Judaism or negating Judaism or declaring Judaism to be false. Rather, what Paul is doing is he's universalizing Judaism through the Christ, that the special relationship given to the Jewish people in the Mosaic, in the revelation given to Moses and in the law is now shared with everyone everywhere, everyone who's ever lived. So in the past, everyone who will live, the future, everyone on the planet every culture, everywhere. There is no place, there is no place now where the love of God is absent. So it's, it's a universalization of the Jewish revela revelation. And that, that's, that's what puts Paul into tension with certain conservative forces in Judaism at his time, which would like to protect the revelation and insist on it as being specifically granted to the Jewish people and requiring adherence to the law. So the question of, you know, who, who is Jesus with respect to the Christ is the, uh, is the question that we have to continually ask ourselves. Every, every Christian has to confront this and every Christian has to think it. So the, this is the paradox that at the heart of Christianity, that we have these, we don't just have Christ nature, you know, the divine, the imminent divine, the divinity that is everywhere. We also have this historical singularity, this place, this event 2,000 years ago in Palestine in which Christ nature becomes embodied in a special way, in a unique way, in a way such as, in a way that is not repeated anywhere else. And the Christian has to think both these thoughts. It would be so much easier to say, oh, Christ nature, maybe like Buddha nature, fests itself everywhere and always, and it's constantly incarnating itself. And so it incarnates itself as Buddha, as Krishna. It incarnates itself in, as the Tao. It incarnates itself wh wherever there's breakthrough. And so Jesus is not particularly privileged in this account. He's just one among many. And the Christians became confused on this point and they fixated on him as the only one. That makes so much sense, doesn't it? The only problem is, is that it's entirely unfaithful to the only textual re records we have concerning Jesus, his preaching, and what they said about him, which is the New Testament, and maybe some, a few non-canonical texts like the Gospel of Thomas.
What we see when we look at the historical record is that in Jesus, Christ's nature breaks through in one single place in time into the world of time, into history. You know, when Tiberius Caesar was the emperor of Rome, when Pontius Pilate was the governor of Palestine, in a specific time and place, a rupture in time occurs. And the, the, the logos through whom all things are created enters into the world. And with that entrance into the world, there is a conflict, an immediate conflict that results in crucifixion. I, I, I like to think of this as a kind of chemical reaction, you know? The divine principle, which is everywhere beneath the appearances, when it becomes one among the phenomena, something, something happens, something drastic happens. And the net result of it is violence, death, and suffering. It's almost like something that shouldn't happen. And I think that's probably the right way to think about the incarnation. It's something that, at least logically speaking, metaphysically speaking, shouldn't have occurred, need not have occurred. And in its occurrence, disrupts the order of time, disrupts, the, disrupts history, disrupts the nature of things. <laughs>